Donald Jeffries. Donald Jeffries. Author of Hidden History and Survival of the Richest. Host of the Donald Jeffries Show. Billy Ray Valentine. Billy Ray Valentine. Host of the Infinite Fringe Podcast. Researcher, truth seeker from the Bronx, New York. Tony Arterburn. Tony Arterburn. Radio host, combat veteran, precious metals analyst, and alt historian. Together, they take on the headlines of the week, decode the disinformation, and plow through the mainstream propaganda. Unauthorized, unscripted, and unintimidated. Unintimidated. This is America Unplugged. All right, what's going on, everybody? How's everybody doing? It's America Unplugged. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. I hope everybody... uh, had a happy and safe one. I hope everybody had a lot to eat. I sure as hell did. You know, it's the best part. And I had the leftovers afterwards, and I still have more in the fridge. It's going to be on for the rest of the weekend for all my WWE fan Survivor Series is tonight. That's going to be very cool. You know, so I'm I'm, I'm happy, you know, but uh, we're here. And and that's, that's a good thing, too, you know, that we're all here again for another week. Thank you for tuning in week after week after week right here on America Unplugged. We have the usual suspects with us today and, of course, a very, very special guest, Mr. Tony Arterburn, the wisest of all the wolves. What's up, sir? Well, it's good to see you, Billy. Had a, had a great Thanksgiving. I'm thankful, of course. I texted both you and Don. Very grateful for both of you. Uh, thankful to be a part of this show. And it's good to see Mr. John Henke with us today. Can't wait to... Uh, to get into his work. Absolutely, man. Always, always excited to have Mr. Hanky on. All right. Don Jeffries, the legendary. What's up, sir? How you doing? Well, I'm grateful too. I'm very thankful for the, uh, the, the family that was over that they're still talking to me that has not canceled me. And, uh, most of them have. So uh, it's nice to have some of them that still love me. And, uh, it was, it's great. It's seriously have your kids around and everything. And, uh, so it's, it's, uh, a blessing to have all that food and like billy ray our refrigerator is still overflowing and i'll i'll probably be sick of turkey and stuffing and green bean casserole here soon but uh i'm loving it for now good 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 and and uh and your fantasy team is doing fantastic <laughs> yeah <laughs> a, a lot of football this weekend right um, yes yeah so, and of course mr john hankey first time here on america unplugged how are you esteemed uh, a researcher and uh you know jfk uh researcher and, and filmmaker you guys know the dude how you doing mr hanky say what's up to the people here in america I'm hey what's up to the people <laughs> here in america i'm doing well i you know i enjoy thanksgiving as an opportunity to celebrate the the best part of humanity right that you can look at all the horror and and so on self-inflicted and other inflicted misery in the world but it, and you know the story of thanksgiving is a story where you celebrate people who had vast differences coming together and right. sharing and and living in celebrating peace and i'm all for that well absolutely well we have to try to celebrate peace in an age of war right in a in a time <laughs> of war where uh when did this age start <laughs> Perhaps you could tell me because I'm rather under the impression it's been going on for a while, for quite some time. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It, it it um it predates me, but uh it's there nonetheless. So uh, let's talk about a few things. While I and I know everybody felt it because uh, I did. I, I went to the supermarket and spent a ton of money. And yes, I go to the supermarket. I live in a city, so I I don't have you know uh farm reserves and all whatever whatever you guys have wherever you guys live right i have to go to the supermarket 
spent easily, I don't know, 350 bucks on nothing, really, you know? And and the turkey was ridiculously expensive. It was like $35, $45. We spoke about this a little bit. And I mean, uh, and, and Tony's going to get into it in just a second, and we'll go around to the panel, but uh, I, I think this is what's what's adding to 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 people being as as disillusioned with the American dream as they are. You know, is is the economic state? You know, even though things have gotten slightly better, it's still really bad. You know, and most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, most Americans are in debt. You know, um, so it's it's a difficult time, and things look like they're really out of reach, right? And and I. I venture to say that this is a, a a world situation. It's not just here in America. I think uh, everybody is uh, is feeling it. The people, right? Like I say, like I say nine times out, of, it's you know, it's the people that that have to deal with this. It's it's the people that that feel the effects of all the bad policy and and everything else, right? So we're the ones dealing with it. And uh, here in America, you know, we built this illusion, or they they have built because I didn't do anything, and neither did anybody on this panel. They've built this illusion of the American dream, right? And uh, maybe at one point it was a thing, but it certainly wasn't throughout my lifetime. And it's becoming more and more evident that it's it's out of the out of the grasp of most most Americans. Tony Arterburn, what's up? Well, by design, and I want to uh, start by saying, you know, if I've seen farther than others, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. So look who we have on the program today. We're both Don Jeffries and John Hankey. I was watching John Hankey's documentaries uh, before I read Don Jeffries' work. And, uh, of course, Don Jeffries wrote Survival of the Richest. I happen to enjoy that. Oh, we lost John. No, he I didn't let me comment there. He's like, well, uh, I guess <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, but we, you know, this is something I, you know, we talk about a lot, and that's the <clears throat> income disparity, the wealth concentration, yeah. and really, it's a built-in conspiracy. Is a great word for it. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a plan to rob you of your wealth and your, your life energy and your ability to self-actualize. This is something that's been going on in the West, and this is what you're referring to is a Wall Street Journal article. Uh, that we were talking about off air. Let me let John back in stage. Hey, I don't know what happened. That's that's quite all right. Linked. <clears throat> Tony has that effect on people. You know, he says stuff and he's like, let's get so out of here. here. Uh, <laughs> so voters see American dreams slipping out of reach. And what does that mean? Well, it's like the ability to to own a home, white picket fence, all that stuff. You know, the uh, what you would consider the quintessential American dream where you can have a family, um, you know, and have a, a a person who stays home and raises the children, whether that's usually a woman that does that. And that's that's what it what it was in America, American life for many, many decades. And then slowly that was taken away from us. And it was by design. Now, they don't tell you that in school. They don't say, well, hey, your uh, your dollar lost, you know, 70, 80 percent of its purchasing power overnight. You know, when we went off the gold standard, they don't say stuff like that. They just uh, come out with new financial products. They'll give you an IRA or a 401k. Uh, you need to get into the stock market. All these things that they tell you when you used to be able to just save your dollars, put them away because you had, you know, a dollar was back good as gold or you had a silver dollar. You could put it in a coffee can and dig it up 25 years later, still be a dollar. That's not the case anymore. And that's kind of the sleight of hands, the magic trick. And this article talks about how it's basically been declining for the last 50 years, but they don't say why. It's just they think it's just people's perceptions. Things don't cost more, ladies and gentlemen. It's your dollar buys less. It's, it, at the end of the day, that's all that is. It's just you have a, a dollar that's decoupled from any value. It's a fiat currency. means Fiat means by decree. So that means they say so. 
So you have the ability to purchase less every single year. And that's their go-to is to inflation is the increase or to inflate the money supply. And they inflate the money supply every single day. So if you're saving dollars, that's not what the rich do. And the rich, the, and I'm ta talking about, we, Billy and I were talking off air, to be in the 1%, what, what does it take to be in the 1% in this country? You got to make $333,000. That's considered the 1%. So that's not really 1%. We're talking about the upper echelons of upper echelons that really, they don't even deal in dollars at all. They, they buy assets, they borrow, they live in a circle in this sea of debt. And that's how they live. We're taught to do differently. So the American dream is slowly slipping away because the dollar is losing purchasing power. It costs more to buy a home, costs more to get groceries costs more to fill up your tank and all these things are just, but again, you're, you're going off the old model and the old model is go to school, get a degree, uh, save for retirement, you know, buy a house, all this stuff, but you never get ahead. And they're counting on that. They're counting on you never get, there's a reason why Warren Buffett complains about his tax rate. Not that it's too high, that it's too low. So you wonder, well, that's pretty counterintuitive. Of course it is, because he has foundations and wealth for generations. He doesn't care about the tax rate. What he cares about is competition. So they, these, the very rich upper echelon want high taxes. They want regulation. They want you at, priced out of everything to create a, a servant a surf class, which is what they've done. So yeah. the, there is no more middle class. The American dream is dying, but it's been dying by design. And you can look at the 71, we went off the gold standard. 73, we ran our last trade surplus. We never, this country's built on trade and manufacturing. We never ran a trade surplus again. It's a trillion dollar trade deficit. So that, that money goes somewhere. It's the largest transfer of wealth in human history before COVID-1984. So Americans are starting to finally, I mean, when the, when the musical chairs stop, there's only gonna be a few places left and the, the most elite of the elite are gonna have those, those places at the table and you and I are left out. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about it like three hundred thousand dollars. And while that may seem like a lot of money to most of us, it's really not a lot of money. You know, and if that's the the one percent, then we're screwed. Like, really? Like, I mean, if, if that's what that is, I, I, I was telling tone, I'm like, you, you can't. I mean, if, if you live alone in New York City, then you may be able to survive and have a decent lifestyle with $300,000, but you're probably living paycheck to paycheck, you know, you're in some capacity, you know, it's really not a lot of money. Anyway, Don Jeffrey survival of the richest. I know you know all about this, man. What's up, buddy? Well, yeah, this is, uh, this is my uh, pet issue really. Uh, and you know, it's, it's very simple. I mean, I, I'm no economist. Uh, I don't know as much about this stuff as Tony does in terms of intricacies, uh, gross national product and all, all this stuff. And those are words that uh, are irrelevant to most people. Uh, yeah. The bottom 50% of Americans I wrote about in Survival of Riches is growing. The bottom 50% of Americans have nothing. They make less than $30,000 a year, and they have less than 1% of the collective wealth. That's half your country. And with every wave of illegal immigrants coming in, they're, they're poorer than anybody here. So they're entering the absolute bottom. So they're expanding that half of the country and now more that has nothing. And they're squeezing out the top 20%. You know, we've talked about the 80, 20 per split on the, on here. Always the 80, 20% you see everywhere. It's based on the casino model. 80% have to lose. So 20% can win. That's what our economy is based on. 80% have to lose. So 80%, that's why you have 70 some percent of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. 
Uh, it varies. Uh, they have less than a thousand dollars in the bank. Have nothing basically. We're basically getting by. And then yeah. the bottom, you had the people crapping on the streets and living in tents, and they're expanding too. Right. That that look at us as as if we're rich. But you have the twenty percent, and that's where you get the three hundred thousand something. Who to us, that's that's obviously and certainly to somebody on the street, that's a fortune. Uh, they're they're at the bottom tier. They're like the the ghetto of the twenty percent. I mean, of the one percent. But uh, to the rest of us, they're they're very wealthy. But uh, the people at the top, the one percent of the one percent, the absolute top, the ones I wrote about in Survival of the Richest, they are above it all. They're like Warren Buffett, as you talk about, who just they don't pay taxes anyhow because they have all their wealth hidden in these tax free foundations. And if my hero Huey Long was alive today, he would not. He would be looking at those tax free foundations, and that's where he'd go first. You know, people forget about his share of the wealth plan. That's what we need. We need something like that. He was not a communist or a Marxist. He wanted to exempt the first million dollars of income in the 1930s from any taxation. That's about 12 million today. So who could who except the absolute top tier could be against something like that? People don't realize, again, I'm not a communist, I'm not a socialist, but I did some research when I wrote the updated version of a survival, the, the, the paperback that Naomi Wolf wrote the forward to. And uh, we you look at the statistics, the, the known wealth in this country, and I'm not because the Fed has never been audited, really. So we don't know how much is there. Or, you know, funny money is there. And the foundations have never been audited. We don't know how much Bill Gates has in his foundation or the Rockefellers, the old ones, like the Ford Foundation, uh, Clinton Foundation, any of that. We don't know how much wealth is there. It's all sheltered. We don't know how much is offshore, not paying taxes. It, it, Trump, one of his many promises, talked about taxing that. He never did anything about it. But the, the money that we know is here, the known money, if you divide it up equally between every man, woman, and child in America today, I think that includes all the illegal immigrants, be $343,000 each for every man, woman, and child. That gives you an idea how much wealth there is. And when you have that much wealth, nobody should be sleeping in a tent on a street, obviously. Nobody should be homeless. No one should have to walk around and think, I can't get my next meal. So it's the wealth is there. We have incredible wealth, but it's concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. And the, the way it's spent by government through our taxes, the priorities are completely out of whack. So we don't do anything with the roads. We don't do anything with the bridges, but we send $100 billion you know, to Ukraine and Israel to drop of a hat. Those are our priorities. And these are the people that you know we keep electing somehow, if, unless they're not even counting the votes, which they might not be. So it, it boils down to a simple formula. So I've talked to, again, I'm, I'm a community college dropout, uh, but I can understand that the basic problem is that you're not paying that 80%. You're not paying, your, your rigged marketplace is not compensating 80% of the people uh, well enough for them to be able to meet the ever-expanding cost of living. It's, it's a very simple thing. There, you know, you're not getting enough in to meet what you need to have out. And you look at it in housing. I, I'm still a licensed realtor and I see what that's like. I mean, one bedroom apartments around here, uh, you're, you're 15, $1,700 for an older apartment. Uh, who, what young people can buy? Again, you have 50% of the country doesn't make $30,000 a year. Who can possibly rent those places? So this is a horrible problem. The American dream died a long time ago, I think, but it's been, you know, murdered, obliterated, uh, created, I don't know what they've done to it now, but it's, and as uh, George Carlin said, you have to be asleep to believe in it. And that's exactly where we are now. The American dream no longer exists, and it, but it's, and it could just with a, a you know, a revamping of priorities, a fair tax system where you went after all that wealth 
that ill-gotten wealth offshore and in foundations and so forth. But nobody's talking about doing that. Instead, you'll hit the Bernie Sanders type that will want to raise taxes on the wealthy. And somehow it doesn't really reach the super wealthy. And uh, so it's it's a, it's a huge problem. But I, I hope more people are realizing it. And one thing I, I have been uh, responsible for is a lot more people know about Huey Long now. I think I'm the only one talking about him. So I hope, I hope more and more people look at him because he's the greatest political figure, I believe, in the history of the world. One of the first critics of the Fed predicted his assassination, said the government was going to kill him on the floor of the United States Senate. A month later, they did. Best friend of Smedley Butler. Most people don't know that. I, he, even his great granddaughter didn't know that until I told her. She said, I said, yeah, he, he, Smedley Butler loved him so much. But he was so, when uh, Huey Long named Smedley Butler in his fictitious uh, cabinet, when he, he wrote the book, uh, uh, My First Days in the White House, which was posthumously published after they killed him, his secretary of war was Smedley Butler. So, you know, there would have been no war in a Huey Long administration. And Smedley Butler said it was the greatest honor of his life. And then after they killed Huey Long, he said, I have no more interest in politics. Dropped out, died like five years later or something. So this is the kind of hidden history most people don't know. But uh, I hope we get more and more people to, uh, to maybe the woke crowd will start talking more about this and wake up in terms of, but we, we need to have a redistribution of wealth. And you don't have to have, be a communist or socialist to say it. I agree. I, I agree. Uh, what's up, uh, Jason Seelman from Canada? Greetings to you. Love it up in Canada. Um, all right. Mr. Hanke, it is your turn. Um, you God, is all that in your book? Survival of the Riches? Yeah, a lot of that is, yeah. And and what about Hidden History? Well, some Where, of it's in there. I mean, I got nine is, books, so yeah, all this stuff is, most of it's is, in one book is or another. Is Huey Long in Hidden History? That's... A little well, Huey. A, a whole section, as my friend John Barber said, the survival of the riches is worth it for the price. The price is worth it for Huey Long alone. I have a whole section on Huey Long. I go into I his see. assassination and I talk about his share of the wealth program and what he really did for people in finite numbers. What the money he saved, average working people, and that's why he's still revered by. And he's also the only politician in the South in the 1930s when the Klan was powerful. He never. You can't find a, a racist comment on the record from. You can find it from anywhere else. They're, they're, they can't do it. He was above that. He concentrated completely on, he wanted to eradicate poverty. He didn't care what color the people were. He was talking about classism. Well, this is all very, very, very interesting. I mean, for people who don't know, my thing for the last 50 years has been the Kennedy assassination. Um, and I mean, to me, that's when did the American dream die? Well, if the, if your president gets murdered <clears throat> and they don't catch the guys who did it and they don't try to catch the guys who did it. And it's so very obvious who the guys are who did it. Um, you're not living in a democracy. And for me, that's the American dream is to live in a democracy. And Don would point out, and I, it, probably Tony would agree with him, that we live in a society where it's one dollar, one vote. And if you're a trillionaire, you you have a trillion times more to say <clears throat> than a person who has one dollar. Um, and I don't know that I need to spend time saying this, but the, the thing is that people like you, me and you and, and everybody that we know, when we're done paying our grocery bill and our car insurance and our rent, we have virtually nothing yeah. left to spend on political candidates 
Whereas a guy who has a trillion dollars, when he, he when he spends as much as he can think of spending, he still has 99.99% of it left. And he's got nothing better to do than to buy political candidates, which is why you have people and have had people since Huey Long pointing out the obvious fact. Let me, you know, I'm 70 years old. History's been my thing since the, the seventh grade I was reading. Uh, I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is about 800 pages because my family's German and I wanted to know, you know, how the hell did this happen? Um, because I didn't know any fascists, right? Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of Germans, but there weren't any fascists among them. Anyhow, um, the French Revolution took place because the nobility didn't pay any taxes. And so there was no money to maintain the infrastructure, <laughs> ringing any bells, and, and they taxed the people, they taxed the poor people. Um, well, you know, these are people who hardly got two nickels to rub together and you want to take one of them for taxes. And it ended up with a revolution. Well, it's fairly obvious to me, I think probably to everybody here, that the change that would be necessary if your American dream is to have a democracy, it's going to take a revolution of, it's going to take changes of revolutionary proportion to make that happen. Um, and let me point out that this stuff has been going on for a long time. If, let me recommend a couple of books. One of them, Jack London, anybody out there heard of Jack London? He wrote oh, People of the, of the Abyss? People of the Abyss? Say it again. It's the People, People of the, the Abyss, Abyss, wasn't it? Wasn't it? That, that, that's the book you're talking about, Jack London? I don't, that doesn't ring any bells. He wrote Call of the Wild. He wrote White yeah. Fang, um, right? He wrote essentially young adult books, but he right. also wrote a book called The Iron Heel. Yes. Yes, yeah. And there's a chapter in The Iron Heel called Mathematics of a, of a Revolution. And there's a four-page footnote in The Mathematics of a Revolution that in which he talks about, he explains how the Rockefellers have so much money that they have an army of people in their employ figuring out how to spend their profits, what to buy next. <laughs> and my investigations have demonstrated that the Rockefellers are very, very, very much their junior partners to the Rothschilds, that they are minions at most of the Rothschilds, that they are, I think, for the most part, cutouts for the Rothschilds, and they hold up, you know, Bill Gates and and so on. Um, and, you know, these guys are billionaires. <laughs> if you're a billionaire, if you don't have a quadrillion, that's a thousand trillion dollars, you ain't got a place at the table of the, the guys who are making this stuff happen. And that one of the things that they do, getting back to this this story that Jack London tells about the Rockefellers, and it, you know, it goes on for four pages. It's, I'd really, really recommend it as, as very basic reading for anybody. Um, whenever a company, right, Google, you have a bunch of honest, hardworking, decent guys who, who develop this algorithm that, when you type in what you're looking for, it brings you the thing that you're looking for. And so, yeah, it's fabulously successful because it's so 
much more effective than anything that's out there. And it gets bigger and bigger and larger and larger and richer and richer. And then it gets bought. And Netflix, ditto. It gets bigger and bigger and richer and richer, and then it gets bought. And Apple, ditto. It gets bigger and bigger and richer and richer, and then it gets bought. And I think that that probably applies to anything in our society. Um, this is, I don't know, I'm going to, I'm shifting gears just a little bit, but um, Elizabeth Warren, do you remember when she was talking about, I, I don't remember the figure and I don't want to make it up, but it's either 2% or it's one half of 1%. She was proposing a wealth tax. And she talked about the, the money, they could pay off the national debt and, and still have, then they, they'd have so much money they didn't know, wouldn't know what to do with it. And you guys have been talking about one thing and another. The thing, I don't know why, maybe because, you know, I taught, um, inner, I taught high school in the inner city in Los Angeles for 30 years. And so, and, and I hear from a lot of those students on a very regular basis. And all of them struggle to pay for college. If you live in Germany, you don't struggle to pay for college. They not only pay your tuition, they pay all your other expenses. They'll pay your, your room and board, your rent and, and utilities and food bills because they recognize that if you want to have a strong country, you don't need a billion dollar aircraft to use in a war that you didn't need to be involved in in the first place. You need to have kids, you need to have a strong, intelligent, capable workforce. And the way you get a strong, intelligent, capable workforce is by paying for the education of these kids and not, geez, and not burdening them with just this, these insane amounts of debt so that they can become qualified to help make the society better. You, I mean, do you see the, the disconnect, at least in my head? These are guys who are trying to make the country better and we're going to burden them with debt. Whereas the guys who have hedge funds who are doing the opposite, we don't tax them whatsoever and recalling them the, the French Revolution. Anyhow, um, this stuff has been going on a long, long time. Let me recommend to Tony that uh, he try to get his hands on this book. It's called The Secret of the Rothschilds, Mary Hobart. I don't recommend buying the book. If you try hard enough, you can find a PDF. This thing has the bottom of almost every page is missing. Um, but the thing is that it's not about the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds are barely mentioned in this book. It's about debt. And the, my point is, and I think it's written in 1903. It might be written in 1897. It's, but the, the, these are not new things. These are not new issues. In the American Revolution, the, the, when did the American dream die? Well, in the American Revolution, my boy, Ben Franklin's dream was that the United States would be able to print its own money. And the first thing that Washington and Hamilton do is hand the printing of money over to the bank of, over to the, for the foreign banks, which turns out to be the English banks, which turns out to be the Rothschild banks. So the, the, the dream of having a financial system that was free and independent and was going to be used to promote the general welfare and to promote good, solid businesses, to promote a, a society and, and an economy that provided the citizens with the things that they needed, like food, clothing, and shelter, that was never on the table. 
Um, it turns out, good gravy, if you, if you read a little bit into Washington, uh, People's History of the United States will tell you things about Washington said, yeah. and what a monster he was to his troops, right? While his, while his troops were starving and freezing at Valley Forge, he's, he's not enduring that, right? He lived a very, 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 very different lifestyle because it, if you take the big picture and, and look at it from that point of view, he his sympathies and loyalties were with the one tenth of one percent or one percent at the most right at the lowest and that he had he, he had no more sympathy for his soldiers than he did for his slaves and maybe less because he didn't own his soldiers so right he was going to take care of his slaves because they belonged to him turns out this is a recent development that, that somebody going through the Washington library at Mount Vernon. And I got this from the Mount Vernon website and they find that this guy was owned by the bank of England. He's got all this stock in the bank of England, which was owned by the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds took over the bank of England in, in 1825, but certainly they, they owned most of it before that. Well, they, they took over all of it at that date. So, I guess I've said enough. Yeah, <laughs> the, the uh, secrets of the of the Rothschilds. Yes, isn't that what I said? I believe it went Mary Hobart. Mary Hobart. Yes, um, thirty bucks on Amazon. Oh, don't no 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 no. Find a PDF. Type type in that and type in PDF. Find a PDF. You don't want it off of Amazon because I'm telling you, you get half pages. They don't want you to read it, but. But what it says, let me save everybody the trouble because it's not an easy read. Right. Uh, I, I, I wanted to stop talking, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'll say this in a couple of minutes. I, I wrote to you guys, I think, um, William Jennings Bryan. Yep. You've heard the name. Oh, I, he ran for president I, I, four yeah. times. He gave a speech about cross of gold. Well, they yes. teach you that in high school. But what the hell does that mean? Why, why is he talking about a cross of gold? And what you find out from this book, what she complains so bitterly about, and you know, it's maybe a hundred pages, but she says, she repeats the same thing and giving you all of this detail for a hundred pages. She says that the big bankers, and she maybe uses the name Rothschild once or twice, but she, she sticks really solidly to complaining about how the bankers maintain the money supply. They completely control the money supply. And every 10 years, they reduce the <laughs> money supply so that you can't pay your debts because there isn't enough money in circulation for people to pay their debts. And every 10 years, they turn off the tap and half of the country goes bankrupt and the bankers come in and they buy up every every solid business that went bankrupt because the money supply was too short for them to maintain themselves. They buy them all up for pennies on the dollar. And this has been going, and that's what William Jennings Bryan was talking about, was going off the gold standard and issuing greenbacks. Lincoln got assassinated for issuing greenbacks. Um, so Tony and I are gonna have a difference of opinion on fiat currency until maybe we've talked for a couple of hundred hours. But anyhow, <laughs> I might bring him around. Um, <laughs> The, the thing is, if you have a society that's run for the benefit of the people, if you have government of the people and by the people and for the people and a society and an economy that is government of the people and by the people and for the people, and you're the president, they're going to shoot you in the head. 
You hear what I'm saying, right? It, we, we have some precedent for that. Anyhow, um, enough said. All right. Beautiful, beautiful. Good stuff. Um, um, I, I want to um, move on just because of for the in, in the interest of time, I, I want to hit a couple, of, a couple of other things before we get up out of here. But I do want to say somebody in the chat and I forget who it is. So I'm very sorry. Um, said that, you know, um, it's greed. I think it was Ray Bulls. It's greed. Right. And, and, and in, in a lot of ways you are absolutely right. And people can get into the, you know, the intricacies of, yeah. of, of how the economy works and all this other stuff and, and talk about inflation and all this, you know, but, but in reality, if, if bare bones based reality, you walk the streets of New York city, do it. One day, if you're around here, walk the streets at about 12 o'clock midnight. Um, go down Fifth Avenue. Go down any street in Manhattan. And you will see literal food as garbage. Yeah. Just throw, perfectly good food. And I mean, on almost every corner, you're going to find this. Because they can't sell it anymore, right? It's no good, right? quote unquote, but all of this food is hoarded and then it's tossed out. Yeah. That's, that's, that's greed. You know, that, that, that's greed. And, and we've been conditioned to, to accept it under, under, under the veil of capitalism. And what's up, what's up, Don? What's no, up? Billy, you, what, one of the most profound things Huey Long ever said, he said so many great things. And he, this is what you're talking about here. He said it's not enough for these because they have everything. I mean, what what more can they possibly want? They couldn't spend it. It's not enough for them to have everything. Right. They have to know yeah, that someone you. else doesn't have it. Right. They right. have to know you don't have it. That's what they get off on. So, and then you have nonsense. I've talked about that in survival versus and elsewhere. It's unbelievable the food that's thrown out in this country. But right. they will tell you, well, we have to. Yeah. Lawsuits. <laughs> you know, we have to like I'm sure the homeless are going to be, you know, instituting a bunch of lawsuits because they got an upset stomach. I mean, this is, it's so stupid. And all you have to do again, if you had leaders that had any intelligence, you just put a disclaimer up there. No, take this food at your own risk. We it, 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 it we think it's still good, but we, by laws require that we have to throw it out every night. However, we are not going to be you know, we're not we're not responsible if you get sick for it, but that's all you have to do. And you think people that are starving aren't going to take it because of that. So, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. But, but additionally to, to add on to that, where do we get to a point where these uh, institutions or, or restaurants or whatever, right. Where do we get to the point where they have so much food that they get to throw it out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When do we get to that point? You know, that, and then there's like, well, there's a lack, you know, there's not enough food going or there's not enough water. There's people starving this, that, and the other. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Well, it's right? all unnecessary. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I want to say, yeah. you know, if, if Steve Jobs is motivated to invent Apple computers by greed, and if Bill Gates is motivated by greed to develop very, very low cost computers that everybody in the world has, and if Elon Musk is motivated by greed to develop these really, really solid cars, that part of greed isn't bad. What's bad is when you let greed rule, right? It's, yeah. it's, 
It's when you have government of the greedy by the greedy for the greedy. And, you know, if you tax, if, if, if you did what Huey Long said and said, look, and well, there's, there's a guy named Jeffrey Sachs. He's a professor at Columbia. He's a big shot in the UN. And he, he ran the Lancet investigation into COVID and concluded that it came from U.S. weapons labs. But he said he has it on good authority that you don't need more than a billion dollars to be happy. And if you took everything from everybody who had more than a billion dollars, there would be no poverty on the planet. Of course. Of course. And, to, and, and when you get into the zeros, I mean, I've done this, and I, I, I quote in Survival of the Riches, some of these, some of the greatest minds are, are these anonymous people posting on forums. Nobody knows who they are. But they'll say things that are way more profound than any economist I've ever heard. And, you know, they, they'll do the math and say, hey, you know, this this guy got a $40 million golden parachute. I've estimated that at $50,000 a year, I would have to work, you know, 10 centuries. <laughs> and that's and that, so when you have that and that's what Eugene Debs said. And again, I'm not a socialist, but Eugene Debs was a great man. A World War One protester was jailed for it. And he had this profound comment about, you know, when he when he went to court. And he said, I'm protesting a system that makes it possible for one man to accrue more wealth than scores of working men and women do working an entire lifetime. Yeah. And, and there's there's something wrong about that. Nobody's life is worth that much more. And I talked about this survival of the riches. You could argue if one person came up and they credited him, he, I mean, we, I think we know how they can cure cancer because I think they created it. But let's just say that it's a thing that they, they can't figure out. And this guy comes up with a pill. No more cancer. Okay. Well, that guy, okay. You know, he, he probably deserves to be a trillionaire or someone else that comes up that came up with a, a way to extend life, like to double or triple people's lifespans. Okay. Well, that's, in, you can't put a price tag on that. So, but as I put out in survival, of the riches, almost all the world's richest men are people like Warren Buffett or <laughs> are, are just are good at making money. They're good right. at investing or somebody like Bill Gates who started life. You no, know, he wasn't middle-class. He had a grandfather that was a bank president. His mother, his father was president of Planned Parenthood. His mother in the 1950s sat on a bunch of these boards of directors and all the other mothers were, were baking cookies. Uh, so the, these are not normal people, so-called Carlos Slim. I don't know what that guy does in Mexico. He's, he's a, what do they call it, a, a hedge fund guy or something. I mean, what does that even mean? But they're not contributing anything to society. So their wealth hasn't produced anything of value. And that's that. That's what I object to is that these people are just really good at accumulating money, and avoiding taxes on it. But they're they're parasites to me, and I, I think they're worse than the worst uh, welfare recipient you can find. They're professional money makers. Yeah, is, is what they are. Yeah. Well, and they're sick to the core. Yeah. Right. I mean, if if you sit down and eat a meal, and when you're done, you want another one, and when you're done with that one, you want another one. There's something wrong with you. Yes, that's right. right? <laughs> and these guys are pathological, yeah. right? If if you have, oh, if you have a hundred million dollars and you want more, there's something pathologically wrong with you. And if you can't enjoy your wealth unless you can see that other people are suffering from poverty, well, there's something really, 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 really deeply. Yeah pathologically wrong with you. And, you know, if you murder, she's oh, a magnificent <coughs> human being like John Kennedy, so that you can have a war in Vietnam, so that you can profit from the death and destruction that you're going to inflict. 
oh my goodness, you need to be locked behind bars. Yeah. Um, let me mention, right, I have this video, it's called Go to Vimeo Breakthrough Dash JFK, and you can watch it for 99 cents, you get the four minute trailer, you, you're gonna learn a lot in four minutes anyway. JFK made the decision to get everybody out of Vietnam. The, the scene from the movie JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK, where Donald Sutherland, the guy in black, is talking to Kevin Costner and he's telling him about Kennedy's plan to end the war in Vietnam. Well, Fle Colonel Fletcher Prouty is the man in black and he said all of that, but it wasn't corroborated until a couple of years ago when a friend of mine, Professor Galbraith, has a chair at the University of Austin. Somebody handed him a box of declassified Kennedy materials and he finds the memo written by, by Maxwell Taylor saying Kennedy has ordered everybody out, all personnel out of Vietnam by the end of 65. And he, Maxwell Taylor says this language is taken from the trip report, which was approved on October 3. And if you go and find the trip report, it's not in there. They have altered those documents. They hid the, the Taylor memo there's another guy you could reach up and pull it off the bookshelf. I won't. His name is Patty, P-A-T-T-I. And I, it, the book might be called Why Vietnam? Why Vietnam? That's what it's called. Well, it's right there. I could show it to you, but P-A-T-T-I. And he says, he was the head of the OSS in Southeast Asia. He was the head in, in during World War II. And his job was to try to organize a Vietnamese anti-Japanese resistance to recover downed American flyers who fairly often came down in Vietnam. And the leader of his organization was Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> anyway, he, he went to China and got Ho Chi Minh out of prison so he could come back and work for the US, helping them recover down flyers. Ho Chi Minh was never the enemy of the United States. Anyway, what Patty says that that is of significance is that he knew all of the other intelligence people. And he said that the French understood that they never had a chance in Vietnam. Um, right. The people that they were, that Ho Chi Minh was fighting against were guys who had collaborated with the Japanese and the French. So, you know, the 1%. And versus the 99%. And how is the 1%, if, if the 99% are armed, how's the 1% going to win? Well, they're not because most of their soldiers are not willing to die for them in any case. But so the point is that. Patty's analysis, and he says it was the analysis of every intelligence person, British, French, whatever, in Southeast Asia, mainly British and French, that you couldn't defeat Ho and this liberation movement. You couldn't do it, but the French did it anyway. And it, Patty says, because the military contractors wanted to make the money off of the war. <coughs> now he doesn't, uh, he has too, too much survival instinct to apply the same facts and logic to the United States and say, the reason that we had the war in Vietnam, the reason that it was necessary to kill Kennedy and reverse his policy was because even though they knew they didn't have a chance, as we saw, right? Um, history shows you that we, actually there are some, some people who will dispute that, but um, was so that they could make profits off of the war. It's all about war profits. Jeffrey Sachs, I mentioned him before. Jeffrey Sachs was Yeltsin's main economic, American economic advisor, Boris Yeltsin, the first 
premier, first of, of a non-communist Russia. And he then became just a mucky muck. He, he got to know all of the heads of Europe. And the thing that the drum that he's beating today, and you can find him 25 places on the internet, speaking about how two weeks into the war in Ukraine, the Russians and the Ukrainians had made a deal for peace. And the United States came in and killed it. And he's just, and, and he says, you know, I talked, he names the name of the, the person who was the, uh, the head of Germany at the time. It, was it Angela Merkel? I guess it was Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel said it. I mean, I saw Angela Merkel going on record saying that they had lied to the Americans. They had lied to the Russians and said that they were working for peace. And all they were doing was trying to buy time while they armed the Ukrainians so that they could have this war. He, when he's talking about this, asks the question, well, who benefits from the war? The Ukrainians have lost, geez, a million people, right? A million young men who were capable are now wasted. Tens of millions of Ukrainians have fled the country. There's practically nothing left. Well, the, the Ukrainians didn't benefit from this war. Uh, the Americans have sent, I don't know what, 50, 80 billion dollars over there. So how did we benefit from this war? Who's the the price of fuel is what drove supposedly drove the inflation in this country and in Europe. Um, people's standard of living in Europe today has collapsed because so much of their income is now being eaten up by the increased cost of fuel and the inflation that that generates. Right, the hot dog that you bought is going to be more expensive because it was. It, required fuel to make it and to deliver it to you. So who benefited? And he says the military industrial complex. So ladies and gentlemen, and actually, if there's one thing I get into your here today, the military industrial complex is not an American institution. It is an international institution and it includes the military industrial complex in France and Germany and England and Italy and wherever else they have one and the United States. But I don't believe I'll make this point since nobody's waving their hand to, to stick one in. Um, this friend of mine, Professor Galbraith at the University of Texas, wrote an article when Biden announced that he wasn't going to release the documents. And Galbraith makes the point about how terrible this is for U.S. prestige, that the entire world is observing this and is saying the United States is not a democracy. They can't, right, if, if, a, if a president gets murdered and you can't get the guys who killed him, you don't have a democracy. That's not good for U.S. prestige. And who is it that doesn't give a damn about U.S. prestige? And he said that, and it hit me, that also when they killed John Kennedy, that wasn't good for U.S. prestige. That was terrible for U.S. prestige. It was a monstrosity for U.S. prestige and you know, I think that uh, I'm very much under the impression that de Gaulle certainly understood who had killed Kennedy uh, because they were the same people trying to kill him. Um, the world, I think, to, oh my goodness. Uh, Fidel Castro gave a speech that I think it was the day after the assassination and he practically names names, but he says, you know, it's the trillionaires. Well, that's absolutely right. The, the ultra right-wing trillionaires who killed Kennedy. It's, he must have watched my movie 60 years ago. Anyhow, um, 
the military industrial complex is not American. It's not an American institution. And it's, you know, it's, it's good that Eisenhower said it, but Oliver Stone and typically everybody else take the fact that when Eisenhower is saying it, he's talking about Americans. And I think that especially, right, you take this thing and add to it. Well, if they're Americans, how come they don't care about American prestige? And if you watch my movie and if somebody asked me to, to fill in the detail, I will. But um, the people who killed Kennedy were not Americans. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. No, that's a cliffhanger if there ever was one. I thought there was coming more, but but uh, but there you go. Listen, we have we have like five minutes left. Do you guys have an extra fifteen, or do we got to go? Don, I'm okay. Uh, I I I probably have to because I had to eat time and, and interview it too, so I probably have to leave right about then. All right, Tony, you got fifteen? Sure. All right, so we'll do Not an good. extra fifteen today. Um, but let's talk a little bit about JFK before we get up out of here. Um, Don, tell them about your book real quick before you go. Okay, well, my, my new book is written, uh, co-written with William Matson Law. He was on my show yesterday along with Steve Cameron. Uh, he's an uh, unheralded researcher, probably the expert on the autopsy evidence wrote in the Eye of History and some other books. Uh, but the book is called Pipe the Bimbo and Red, Jim Garrison, uh, uh, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. It concentrates, uh, it's, it really is built around my friendship with Dean Andrews III, uh, who was my brother's best friend somehow. It's amazing how they came into each other's lives. And he, uh, he's been a family friend for the last 20 years or so, spent a lot of holidays here and uh, was over for many family gatherings. A nice picture of him, my brother and me in the book. And uh, it's the first time he's spoken out and talked about what was, and for those of you who don't know, Dean Andrews Jr. is the beatnik lawyer that was played by John Candy in Oliver Stone's JFK. And Pipe the Bimbo in Red is one of the lines he says as he sees a a woman go by, pipe the bimbo in red, you know, and uh, I've gotten some complaints about the title. You know, I, I, I'm used to controversy. Obviously, we're not calling people bimbos or anything. And and the pipe is not what you might. Not, it's just check out the chick walking by. You know, it's nothing. I don't think there's anything offensive about it at all. And it's beatnik lingo. And it's a it's a catchy title. And that's the reason we chose to people, you know, ask about it. But it also it, it goes over the New Orleans, what I call the ground level plot in New Orleans. And Garris, I mean, uh, Oliver Stone covered this in, in pretty much detail in JFK. That's what he focused on because he was he made Garrison his protagonist. But we go deeper into Clay Shaw. Clay Shaw had uh, incredible ties going back to Operation Paperclip in World War II. He was tied to everybody, including the Alvin, Alvin Oxter or the Alvin Oxter Clinic, uh, which almost certainly killed Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend, Ed Vogel, back in the day. And I was the first one. I was able to contact uh, Ed Vogel's family. And people can read and see the interesting things they had to say they speak out for the first time here as well. And so this, this, I, what I believe is like Garrison, I think Lee Harvey Oswald was an undercover agent who was on assignment at the time of the assassination, told he was infiltrating a plot to kill the president. I go beyond Garrison because I think all those people, except Shaw, I think Shaw was the conduit between them and the higher ups. I think they were all being manipulated against each other. David Ferry and all the rest of them. They may have all been told the same thing. Hey, you know, there's a plot to kill the president. Here, report back to us. And played off against each other. That's why I think the Castro thing has always been, hopefully I'd show that in, the, in this book, the Castro and Cuban thing was a smokescreen. And that's why uh, this group is what contained all the anti-Castro Cubans, Sergio Arrache Smith and all these other people. And they got Oswald and, and, and Ruby and all of them entangled in these groups, which were, had nothing to do with the assassination. Because as I pointed out, you know, if you if you think uh, that that they killed JFK because he wanted to uh, have uh, good relations with uh, Castro, 
and he didn't want to have another Bay of Pigs. Well, what happened after the assassination? Cuba died as an American political issue. LBJ didn't launch a Bay of Pigs too. The CIA stopped trying to kill Castro. Castro outlived them all. So if that was their goal, they, they, they failed miserably. And why would they still be covering up about it? So that, just like the mafia thing, I think is the same kind of thing as smokescreen. But the, the ground level plot's important because it shows you the connections that Shaw had and it shows how these people are all being used against each other. Plus, it's a human interest story that I happened to, after you know studying this thing since the mid-70s when I was a teenager working with uh, Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry, uh, this thing's been, uh, been at the center of my life my entire adult life and then some. And um, so this shows it's a bit of the uh, my personal history in it as well, especially in interacting with somebody like Dean Andrews III. And uh, he's certainly pleased with the book. And I hope people will uh, will be pleased with it. There's a lot of new information in it. And it's very timely. It just came out for the 60th anniversary. And hopefully it will offset all the disinformation you're sure to hear from the establishment press. Absolutely. So, Tell them where they can find you real quick. Uh, the, the only place I'm not shadow banned is donaldjeffries.substack.com. I protest just like my weekly live streaming show. Uh, please subscribe to me there. Break the algorithm. Uh, my book, uh, Masking the Truth, How COVID-19 Destroyed Civil Liberties and Shut Down the World, Sherry Tenpenny uh, Forward. Uh, please keep trying to get that in your libraries. Break the algorithm there. It's the most shadow banned book in the world. They're still playing games with it. And obviously, Pipe the Bim on Red, the new book. You can support me uh, by getting my books in libraries, subscribing to me on Substack. I'm, I'm shadow banned on Twitter, but it's loosening up a little bit at Don Jeffries on Twitter. So uh, I appreciate all of you out there. Ooh, all right, Don. Don, before you go, yes, tell them who John Barber told you that Jim Garrison said was at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little spoiler. This is a spoiler for the book, but uh, it, it, people want to know a name. Jim Garrison, now, you know whether he knew or not. And, and he had hours and hours of private talks with John Barber when John Barber was interviewing for his documentaries. And he, he asked him, you know, who, who was the trigger man? Who's in? He, he named W. Averill Harriman, which is an interesting choice. I mean, very, very, you know, from an old family, great wealth. And uh, so whether that's true or not, I don't know whether there was one trigger man, presumably somebody had to sign off on it. But I think that, again, the people we discuss in this book are the the ground level conspirators, but there were people like that. You had Alan Dulles in the CIA, you had uh, Curtis LeVay in the Pentagon and other people that are pretty obvious like that. Johnson, you know, Jay or Hoover, all these people I think, you know, had knowledge and, and were involved uh, to some degree. And the Secret Service, we examined a lot more about the Secret Service. So, you know, they made it happen. They couldn't have done it without the complicity of the Secret Service. So at any rate, I, I got to run it. John, I, we'll, we'll have to talk again soon. Sorry, guys, I, I have a, you know, I have another interview coming up. He's shortly. a busy man. He's a busy man. Every everybody well, works. Busy, busy, works. Busy, Glad busy. to hear that. <laughs> All right, guys, take care. Talk Thanks, to you soon. Thanks. See you later. Bye. So we want to we want to give uh, Mr. Hankey an opportunity to uh, to plug his film and everything he's doing. Uh, and we were going to talk about Palestine. I, I'd I'd uh, go over. I'd uh, negate it at this point. Not that it's not important because it is. Uh, but it's 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 in the title. So let's discuss it a little bit before we get out of here. Uh, we got 15 minutes. Um, I, I wanted to play a video that that Mr. Hankey sent me real quick on that. And then we can launch the conversation after that. Hold on for a second, guys. Let me make sure I got it here. And if you guys can't hear it for whatever reason, let me know and I will make the proper adjustments. All right. Here we go.
90% of the world and all of the non-white world is screaming in protest and horror at the atrocities being committed by Israel in Gaza. As of November 24th, 13,000 confirmed dead, half of them children, and another 7,000 likely dead under the rubble. And the response of U.S. leaders has been as cold-blooded as could be. People who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. The talking of a Gaza ceasefire. No possibility. Biden likes to call Putin a butcher, despite the fact that it is Biden who actively supports the butchery of children in Gaza. On Wednesday, November 22nd, this alleged butcher, Putin, called it Russia's sacred duty to break Israel's blockade and bring aid to the people suffering the humanitarian catastrophe of Gaza. Coincidentally, Israel agreed hours later to a ceasefire. Fantastic. All right, Tony, um, you, you've been quiet, so I want to get you in and give me your thoughts on the video, what you're thinking about the situation in Palestine altogether, and I also want to inject an idea yeah, Mr. Hankey, we're coming. Well, to I want to ask it a question to see if anybody, Tony, has an idea what the answer is. But how did they get Israel to agree to a ceasefire? <laughs> we don't know, right? And and well, they, it's not as bad as predicting the future. We're clutching at straws in the dark. But I'm interested. You know, that's in in my experience. That's one of the ways that you get to the truth is you you hear everybody's crazy ideas and you investigate all of them and you find out that the craziest one is the one that the evidence supports. But go ahead, please, Tony. Go ahead, Tom. Well, because Hamas is not really Hamas. They're not an individual entity unto themselves. Um, much like Israel pretty much isn't an entity itself either. It's uh, working in coalition with other nation states. And they're, look, you saw an article come up uh, yesterday where the ceasefire is happening and so Hezbollah stood down in Lebanon. Um, how do you get that to happen if Hezbollah is not Hamas? was because they're all linked together. And this, this is a, a conflict between nation states. When you're talking about language and, and geopolitics, uh, Hamas and, and Hezbollah are an extension of Iran and the Shia-backed uh, 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 financial entities. And that's what you're seeing play out. Of course, what is the big uh, picture here? That, that's an open question. But it's not just Israel and Hamas. Um, you know, again, is it Israel is using the momentum of the attack, and I'm sure that Hamas had to, or whoever their handlers are, have to have run the simulations to see what Israel would do. They knew exactly what they would do. So this is a much larger, deeper, darker question of what's happening, not just a, a the October 7th event, because Israel wants to expand its territory. They need an excuse. They backed Hamas for the last, what, 15 years. Uh, Netanyahu had a, a, a warning from Egyptian intelligence, probably not the only one that this was going to happen. So this is being this is playing out, but it really isn't what the surface level politics of the event are, in my opinion. It has it has to do with nation states. It has to do with um, the, really the grand chessboard of geopolitics and uh, probably the same entities playing both ends against the middle for self-serving reasons. And whether that's the, the to to jack up the price of, of crude. Uh, as we go into the Great Reset, where it makes it less and less affordable for the average person to fill up their tank uh, to afford energy, which makes you more dependent on the government and more dependent on the central banks. Uh, these are all again, these are all open questions, but it's not the surface level 
that uh, people are, you know, I stand with so-and-so. Well, I, I mean, I don't stand with, I'm, I don't like the destruction and the killing of women and children and innocence and war in general. I've seen wars and I've lived through them. I know exactly what they do to the human soul. And so I'm not, I'm against, I'm against all forms of state sponsored violence, unless it's, unless, unless you're talking about like an, 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 an actual just, you know, St. Augustine style, just Christian war where you're being invaded or something or something's happening. That's a, when you have the right to defend yourself, but you don't have the right to, you know, bulldoze over people's cities and create genocide and do all the things that are happening, both state sponsored, by the way, to around the world by these. And again, proxies, what's happening in Yemen? The same that we talk about this, you know, Billy and I have spoken this, about this many times. Yeah. This is a, has nothing, really the politics that aren't internal, it's external. It's proxy wars, the House of Saud, uh, you know, with the help of uh, the U.S. is fighting a proxy war against uh, the Yemenis and, and the, um, uh, the, the entities there that, again, they're state sponsored by Iran. So it's, it's not what people think. Um, so I, I think that this is a, what we're watching is, is the reason that there's a, a stand down is because there's more dialogue or something happening behind the scenes between right. nation states. I, I don't I don't totally disagree with you. And then, and then we're going to turn it over to Mr. Hankey. I think, um, you know, we need to uh, first off, it's it's not a ceasefire. Right. They just said we're going to take it easy for a little while, you know, and, and, and not do anything for four days or five days or something. That's li that's the last thing I heard. I don't know if it's changed since then because it's ever evolving. Right. But um, from what I understand, they're ready to go back into Gaza after they get their their um their hostages supposedly. I I don't know if that'll happen. Uh, Don was talking a little bit before the show about how none of these big events seem to happen, right? And and, uh, and then Mr. Hankey was talking about that he's you know done with people that predict the future, right? Because I mean, but the thing is. Uh, and, and Tony says it often. It's it's the boy who cried wolf. It keeps coming and coming. One of these days it's going to happen. I think it's come. And I'm I'm very happy that it hasn't. I'm, I'm very happy that for some this looks like it's not going to break out into World War Three right now or something. But but it, the the all the elements are still lined up, in my opinion, for something like that to pop off. Now, Biden is very good friends with Netanyahu. They've always been right. They had a quote unquote falling out right not too long ago because of of um geopolitical issues which i think it's freaking bullshit probably they just that's what it's being presented in the media you know um if this was a, a donald trump in office heading into an election you would have most of maga and even some of some of uh, of uh, of conservatism saying oh this war was made in particular to bring down Donald Trump. And you know why I say that? Because they did it during COVID. COVID was the, the freaking pandemic, a worldwide pandemic was made to bring down Donald Trump. And people actually believed it. They were like, oh my God, this was done to get Donald Trump out of office. So if you, if you apply the same logic, this is not good for Joe Biden. It's not. Because the, the, the perspective of young Americans is very different from the perspective of older Americans that are pro-Israel. There are a lot of people that are very pro-Palestine or anti-that war for whatever reason. 
And you see it permeating throughout the mainstream and on social media. You see it. It's, it's, it's not even a symptom anymore. It is. It has taken over, right, completely. Like, there's so many people that are like, nope, we are not having this. Um, a Muslim American support uh, for Joe Biden has plummeted, right? Uh, young people want nothing to do with him as a result of this. And what's Joe Biden to do? He has to serve the people that are in control of him, right? And every president has to be in some way, shape, or form subservient to Israel. And that's not me being anti-Semitic. I'm just pointing out the freaking obvious, right? That's the way it is. He's caught in the middle right now of what the hell am I going to do? People already hate me. We want to talk about Trump derangement syndrome. There is Biden derangement syndrome throughout the alternative media, and they fail to recognize it. Soon as somebody criticizes Trump for a little bit, boom, oh my God, you got Trump derangement syndrome. But they'll beat up on Joe Biden 24-7 and nothing. It's all good. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? They don't recognize it. The guy's sitting there. What's he going to do? I think he, I mean, maybe he went over to Netanyahu and said, hey, let me get some of these hostages. Let's try to do something here. Let's try to massage something here. So I have a shot at 2024, right? And, and I hope elections are rigged. Everybody's saying that, you know, I have a very different perspective on that sort of stuff. Um, but that's what I think happened here. Something needed to give, right? Because because uh, this is not good for Joe Biden at all. So you think it was American politics? I think I think it was. Uh, it, I think it had to do with the personal relationship between. Well, yes, actually, if you say it that way, I think it had to do something with the personal relationship between Joe Biden and Netanyahu to uh, to spark something like this to happen. I think the pressure from the left, and and it's it's the radical left uh, on Joe Biden is very real. It's very real, and oh. they are pushing him and getting what getting his getting their way on certain things could be very wrong. Go ahead, sir. No, well, well, there's my observation is there's a lot of evidence to sustain your side. And my observation is that most, and this is just reading in the newspapers, but also, um, you know, I grew up in East LA and it was a very large um, Jewish population and, you know, nobody devout, but um, right. No, I never encountered an Orthodox person in the course of my life, but I probably a hundred uh, more secular Jewish people. Um, and those people look at the same newspapers we look at and they're right. abhorred. Right. And you, the reporters, right. The reporters who typically, you know, keep their toes on the line and, you know, would never say anything about, untoward about the Kennedy assassination or 9-11 or anything like that. And they're just abhorred. The, BB the BBC's reporters are up in arms that the BBC has to start reporting more truth about the horrors that are going on in Gaza. Um, but I suspect that it's you, I don't, I don't think Biden is worried about the left, but I think he's finding out that most ordinary people. The same thing happened in Vietnam. And 68 people are watching their televisions and seeing what's going on in Vietnam. Essentially, you see Milai on the, the screen every single night. Um, and if it isn't Vietnamese suffering unspeakable horror, it's U.S. soldiers being suffering unspeakable horror. So it seems to me that that's 
one possibility that you just discussed that uh, Biden is worried about the politics. I think it's also conceivable that Netanyahu has finally reached the point where the people, members of his own party are calling on him to resign. Yeah, yeah. Right? Leaders of the Likud are calling on him to resign. And that might be the thing. I Just before we uh, got together, I saw a thing that was eight hours old about the Saudis threatening to organize sanctions, oil sanctions. <clears throat> and, you know, it didn't have a lot of detail, but if, if Saudis who are now partners will hang, if, if that happened, if that was a real threat and they were making that real threat to all the leaders in Europe and to the leader in the United States and saying, you're going to be paying three, four times the price for gasoline in two weeks if you don't do something about this it strikes me that they would be listening to that right. what what's uh, the thing that i stuck in my video is and and you breezed right by it um it's on my facebook page if you if you look up john hankey you can find that video on the facebook page but about when when it brings up the article on putin and then it goes down to the bottom he says, oh, no, it, it, I'm sorry, it's in the first line. He says, we have to deliver aid. We have to deliver aid. It is our sacred duty to deliver aid to the people of Palestine. That's, he's talking about, well, you tell me what he's talking about, but it sounds like he's talking about taking the physical steps to, you know, put a, Russian ship landed on the beach and then start unloading supplies and have half the capability of defending it. Yeah. And who's, who's going to be insane enough to attack Russians on a humanitarian mission? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. And then you have the Chinese and everything the Chinese is, is doing, are doing is under the table. I don't know about you, but when they, they made this historic, right? And 40, 50 years, the, the Saudis and the Iranians have been in each other's throats. And out of the blue, as far as I can tell, I mean, I didn't hear anything about it. And suddenly there's a peace accord. And, and those, it wasn't one, it wasn't a one shot deal, right? They, they, the Saudis and the Iranians have every day are having more negotiations and making more arrangements and coming to a greater understanding so that when we're talking about oil and the Saudis are being the mouthpiece, well, yeah, but you know that Iran is right next to them and the Russians, right, also account for a huge amount of the, the world's oil. I, I would be interested to put those numbers together and see how much of the oil we're talking about when we have, well, and I think probably all of BRICS um, several of the BRICS countries are, are oil producing, so that. The point was that who knows what the Chinese are doing? We don't, but there's every reason to think that it's very, 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 very substantial. They're very, very capable when it comes to negotiating this kind of stuff. But so who knows? The, the Russians are clearly, the Russians are drum beating, right? They're banging the drum. The Chinese are tight-lipped. And the Saudis are saying this stuff, but I didn't I read the LA Times this morning. It wasn't in the LA Times. It was on this hundred thousand subscriber internet channel. But it, you know, it it had the words coming out of Bin Salman's Mohammed Bin Salman's mouth. Um, so it's all very real stuff. Right, right, Who right. knows? It 
um, you know, and then we'll see, won't we? Is the ceasefire real? I don't know. Right. We'll right. see. Right. Um, it, it was my impression that the Israelis were sounding like they weren't going to stop till they had killed the last Palestinian in Gaza, that they, their plan was to drive all the Palestinians into Egypt, right? That was their plan. And they have been sounding like they weren't going to stop and they, no, we're not going to have a ceasefire. And so saying the crap that you heard Hillary say, oh, you can't negotiate with these guys and blah, right. blah, blah. They're um, not human. They're monsters. They're not human. And they have 500 miles of tunnels and they're all their headquarters are under the hospitals. <sighs> they're not saying that anymore. And, and if you can't negotiate with them because they're monsters, well, now you're negotiating with them, which that's been their position for the last 70 years. Right. Well, you can't negotiate with them because they're monsters in here. They are negotiating with them. So they are undercutting the principle that they have relied on for the last 70 years to subvert any and all efforts to create a Palestinian state. It, we're going to see. Um, it'll be interesting. Um, I wanted to mention, I tried, I made Don mention that um, on his way out, this guy Harriman, and it's it's the centerpiece of my video, Breakthrough dash j at k at at uh vimeo you can go to amazon and buy it and i recommend you get the disc because they cancel everybody everywhere all the time um i i'm regularly getting uh notices from youtube that they've taken my stuff down and when they take it down it's gone you know you can't recover it if, if that was your only copy and very often it was my best copy anyhow uh, if you go to Amazon, you got you got the DVD. You look it up on YouTube. You you can take the file, the movie file, off of the DVD and put it on your hard drive. And in that video, you see that all Dealey Plaza was full of op people from Operation Mongoose. Sturgis has said that he was there. Frank Sturgis, uh, Marita Lorenz has said that she was in a room with him and all the guys from Mongoose in a um, motel in Dallas and that they were all going to Dealey Plaza. She, she said, I am not going to have anything to do with this. I don't want to be part of Kennedy's murder. And Sturgis told her, we're just going to be decoys. Yeah. So, well, so if they were decoys, who were the shooters? And then you, Prouty, Colonel Fletcher Prouty found a picture of a guy who he identified as being Ed Lansdale, who was the head of Operation Mongoose. And he's in Dealey Plaza and he's walking by the three tramps who were arrested behind the picket fence in the railroad yard. And Prouty sends this picture to his good friend, Colonel, Kru I'm sorry, General Krulak, um, who he and Prouty and Lansdale worked in the same corner of the Pentagon and saw each other on a daily basis. And he sends it to Krulak and says, do you recognize this guy? This picture was taken in Dealey Plaza. And Krulak writes back and says, oh, look at the haircut. Look at the big class ring on his left hand. Look at the, the, the way his stoop and the way he's, the unusual way he's holding his left arm, left arm. Of course, that is Lansdale. What was he doing in Dealey Plaza? Well, Krulak knew what he was doing in Dealey Plaza. Uh, um, well, he didn't know the details, but the first level of mongoose right under Lansdale was E. Howard Hunt, George Bush, Ted Shackley, and David Morales. 
Hunt's son says that's him in the photograph. There's, there's a ton of evidence. <laughs> Jesus angled in the head. James Jesus angled in the head of CIA uh, counterintelligence, which is to say he's the guy who's responsible for keeping tabs on all the CIA agents and making sure none of them go down, get recruited by the Russians or, or you know, become loose cannons or, or go off the tracks. That's his job. And he wrote a memo and he named Hunt. He said Hunt was in Dallas and was involved in the assassination. And Hunt's son says that's him in the picture from the grassy knoll in Hunt's first autobiography. He published him. He was a sniper in China during World War II. He told um, G. Gordon Liddy that he had killed 24 people. He probably told him he killed Kennedy, but Liddy didn't think that was a good idea. Anyway, on and on and on. Hunt worked every day with Bush. Uh, how much time do we have and how much of this should I go into anyway? <laughs> we got Bush, like about 10 minutes before we got a body here. So oh, we got plenty of time. Bush, Bush says he wasn't in, Bush was asked, Joseph McBride, you don't need to know that name, but he found, he, he same story. He had a box of declassified documents and he's going through it. He's killing time. This wasn't his area of expertise, but he finds this memo. It says assassination of John Kennedy, and it's signed by J. Edgar Hoover. He thinks, oh, I should spend some time looking at this. And he does. And it, the memo talks about how the FBI got a notice from the State Department saying, we think that Mongoose might have been involved in the assassination. And so they looked into it. And if he had said, we found out that they were, they wouldn't, they wouldn't. That memo would have been destroyed. But he says, oh, we found out they were all really brokenhearted and, and they weren't certainly weren't involved. Um, in fact, Lorenz says, Marita Lorenz, that they interviewed her days after the assassination. Sturgis says he was interviewed days after the assassination. Uh, Lorenz tried to give them the names of the guys in the station wagon. They said, nah, that's all right. We know all that already. <laughs> okay, so when Hoover's and they also they were in Dealey Plaza, right? They weren't going to lie to the FBI. They didn't do anything. They were in Dealey Plaza, but they didn't shoot Kennedy. So what are you going to do? What are you going to arrest me for? What are you going to charge me with? And but they called Bush into this memo says they called Bush into FBI headquarters and told him this information. Well, I don't know what transpired in the, the interview, but the point is that you have an FBI memo that names Bush as a CIA supervisor of Operation Mongoose. That's pretty powerful stuff. Bush called the FBI the day of the assassination. He talked to a guy named Kitchell. If you Google Kitchell and Bush, it'll bring it up. And he told him that he was going to be in Dallas that night. Well, somebody found the Dallas Morning News advertisement that Bush spoke in Dallas at the Sheraton, which is what he told the FBI he was staying the night before the assassination. And he spoke to an association of independent oil contractors. Bush was, and they, well, his CIA cover was that he was an independent oil contractor from Houston. And Roger Craig was Jim Garrison's favorite police officer. He, because he opened his mouth and said that he had gone to the um, book depository immediately after the assassination, and he and Seymour Weitzman found a German Mauser 6.5 or whatever it is. Um, millimeter Mauser, Weitzman's affidavit to that effect is in the, the Warren Commission documents. 
the Warren Commission documents, by the way, are people want people. Well, we need to release the records. You don't you need to release the records. It's all there. That it's it's very very clear reading the Warren Commission documents that Oswald was working for the FBI when he was arrested in in New Orleans. Um, the point is that Joseph McBride finds this memo. They publish it in the Nation magazine. Um, it, it says, do I have a podcast? No, but Billy Ray's going to have me on, he says. Once, once a week, we're going to have these kinds of discussions. Anyway, um, Roger Craig is Jim Garrison, therefore Jim Garrison's favorite police, Dallas police officer. The Dallas police fire him because he's walking around telling so much of this truth. And so Garrison hired him. And he wrote an article, it's at Ratville, R-A-T-Ville. Um, Roger Craig, I forget what the title is, and it's about 24 pages, an article about the Kennedy assassination. And in it, he describes how he's Jim Garrison, when they wouldn't, when Dallas police refused to give Jim Garrison any of the arrest reports, Garrison was kind of freaked out by that. It was a very, 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 very unusual circumstance as a district attorney to have a police department be so uncooperative. And eventually it dawned on him, hey, wait a minute, Roger Craig, the Dallas police are competent. You're competent. Go ask all the people you know in the Dallas police if they arrested anybody that day. So he's going to get his police reports from the arresting officers rather than from the Dallas police. And so this is what Roger Krasik is explaining in the article. And so on Garrison's behalf, he talked to everybody he knew and he, he talked to detective. That's a big deal. That it's a detective, not a patrolman, Vaughn, who arrested a guy coming out of the um, Dal Tex building, which is right across the street. The crowd in front of the building were yelling at the they had grabbed this guy who looked guilty as hell and the crowd is saying he there were shots fired from that window and and this guy came running out and the crowd grabbed him and handed him to detective vaughn and detective vaughn walks him across the street and on the way across the street the guy tells him he's an independent oil contractor from houston McBride calls up Bush and says, hey, I got this memo. And, and Bush's spokesman says, oh, that wasn't him. Well, it clearly it was him. It's very, 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 very obviously. I, I have a movie called Dark Legacy that Netflix carried for years and that Amazon Prime, you could watch it for free on Amazon Prime for almost 10 years. And of course, everything's been taken down. Um, in the last couple of, right six months ago, they took everything that I, I had done that they were showing for free down. But you, Dark Legacy. Go to Amazon. It's reasonable. It's maybe $13. You can get... And it describes in detail all of the evidence showing that this was clearly Bush in this memo. So McBride, the reporter, the storyteller, um, the researcher, finds this memo. He calls up the Bush campaign. They say, um, that's not Bush in the memo. And it occurs to McBride to ask, so ask him where he was that day. And the person comes back and says, he says he was somewhere, he doesn't remember. He was somewhere in Texas. But we have it from the Dallas Morning News that he was speaking at the Sheridan the night before. We have it from the FBI that he was at the Sheridan the night of, but he doesn't remember. Because, you know, who, who remembers where they were when 9-11 happened? Uh, everybody, absolutely 
everybody. And I can tell you, I can take you to the to the elementary school and to the room and to the desk where I was when the principal came to the door sobbing to tell us to tell the teacher who was then sobbing and angry as hell for the rest of the year. <laughs> she was she was very, very political and she knew that this was a load of crap. Anyhow, um <clears throat> We got so a minute people, left, Mr. Hankey. Sorry. I'm sorry. We got about a minute left, sir. Okay. Well, so they all worked for Harriman. <laughs> Her Hunt testified that he worked for Harriman directly. Right. Um, there's no question. It's a huge story that Prescott Bush was Harriman's right hand man. Harriman had the largest inheritance in the history of the United States, and I had promised Jim Mars that I would investigate. So what what's Harriman doing? Harriman was a minion. He was a junior partner at Brown Brothers. It became Brown Brothers Harriman. Well, he got second billing. Brown Brothers Harriman was taken over by the Rothschilds in 1837. I'm sorry, it was taken over by the Bank of England in 1837. The Bank of England was taken over by the Rothschilds in 1825. That's in Wikipedia. It's in Wikipedia. It's not a secret. Nathan Rothschild. So it's a very short walk from the Rothschilds to Harriman, to the assassination. Uh, by the way, James Jesus Angleton, it's in my video, I think you get to see the page, said that Harriman was the villain. So <laughs> Garrison says it, and um, Angleton says it, and I say it, and he was clearly a minion of the Rothschilds who are the military industrial complex they are big pharma. They are every, they're, they're the big bankers. They're the guys who manipulate the, the economy. They set the interest rates and, and do all of this hardcore, horrible stuff. And they've been doing it since George Washington. And uh, hence the birth of modern day conspiracy after. <laughs> went down there, you know? yeah, yeah, it's all made up. You know, you know, I got I got A pluses in history from the time I was in the you know seventh right. grade. Right. I'm not interested in baloney. Oh man, the first time somebody told me that the the twin towers had been brought down by explosives, I was furious. Why would you say that crap? Because they didn't have good evidence. When you have the stand down, yeah. right? When the stand down is so obvious, why are you talking about stuff that you can't substantiate? I'm not for any theory that you can't. It, I may think it, I'm not going to talk about it if I can't substantiate it. Well, it's a two-hour movie. You'll find some some substantiation in there and 50 years worth of research. That's what we should be doing in the alternative media, man. I, just, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of theories. Present them as such, you know. Um, don't present them as fact or as if you know until you know, right? And then you're like, okay, and I got I got the evidence to back it up. Tony, man. What's up, buddy? Comments on this and then tell the people where they can find you, bud. I just really enjoyed uh, Mr. Hankey's commentary. I mean, just really filling in a lot of gaps. And I've, I watched Dark Legacy and and some I've followed your work for years long before I found Don Jeffries. And then I found Don Jeffries and really just completes the circle. So I really appreciate you uh, coming on today. And I would say I would have been a voter for William Jennings Bryant uh, for uh, just personally, I think the idea of, of free silver and expanding the money supply at the time we had deflationary into the 19th century. We officially went on the gold standard in 1879. Was really following the lead of the Bank of England and, and uh, the Rothschilds. Um, 
I, I, where I think we would have a great debate is whether or not fiat currency is evil, which I believe it's the root of all the evils. Fake money is, is, is completely inherently evil. It builds the deep state. It builds the, it fuels the military industrial complex and it allows these um, rich bastards. I think you've called them that to get away with just basically anything because um, they can hide it. You, can, you really can't hide anything under a, a, a some sort of accountability of some something in sound money really keeps away uh, the massive amount of grift that we see today. So um, that would be an interesting conversation. That's where you get the Wizard of Oz to the allegory of that and and the Cowardly Lion is supposed to be William Jennings Bryan and um, Dorothy clicks her silver slippers, not her ruby ones at the end of the book and L. Frank Baum. So uh, that, that would be a, a great conversation. And I would go back to say too that you know, that book that you have um, about the, really the Rothschilds is really about the idea of who controls the money supply. And I've heard of that That's book. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to get the PDF. That's a great idea. And it's, and it goes back a, a long, I'm like, you're talking about the, the turn of the 19th and then the 20th century. People were very, very in tune to what was happening. And, you know, there's that famous document that was found in an IBM copier called silent weapons for quiet wars back in 1986, it was dated May 1st, 1979. And it's a technical manual, whether or not you believe it's real, but there's some interesting stuff in there. She go look at the the first chapter is about energy and money and the Rothschilds and how they use that to transmute their ideas and create society through the creation of fake money and controlling the money supply itself. And I think it was Mayor Amschel Rothschild that said, "I care not who sits on the British throne. The person who controls the British Empire is the person who controls the money supply, and I control the British money supply." That's a famous quote, but that's really what it boils down to. So all of these things. To me, in my wheelhouse, I, I, I look at the money supply and, and the central banksters and, and just for the origin story, even if as a Christian, it's the origin story, uh, you know, and Christ throws the money changers out of the temple. You know, that's when he has wrath. So I think I think there's something to that. I think there's something. To I was that. there. I had his back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you I'm sure you will. Um, if, um, if you guys want to find uh, silent weapons for quiet wars, it's in. Behold a pale horse. I know it's it's, it's in there. Um, I did a I did a paratruther. It's about a year and a so ago. Uh, Chris Graves mm -hmm. and I did a breakdown of Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. It's a really good show. It's back in my archive feed. You go check it out uh, on, on either one of my podcasts. And and let me host the debate if we're gonna have it. Right? <laughs> oh please, let let me well, do it. That that sounds like the infinite fringe for me. It's What's it's up, not a debate. Let me let me clarify that. You I'm should, trying to sensationalize things so we can, you know, get get it going. You know, it, it's a debate. They hate no, each other. It's, it's a collegial exchange of information and comparing of notes. The, I coach debate mm -hmm. um, in Watts. My Watts team went and debated against the richest kids in the, the city of Los Angeles, Beverly Hills. And, and anyway, um, and when you have a debate, each side wants to win, and the, the their goal is to win. But when colleagues get together, the goal is to discover the truth. And it isn't one side winning and another side losing. It's exchanging information and, and helping each other see things and consider ideas that you hadn't considered before. And I, I'm thrilled by that that uh, particular concept. I, I think that's where it's at. The well, dialectic. Mr. Hankey, tell the people where they can find you. Tell the people where they can find your film. Everything. Go ahead, sir. Oh my goodness! Well, <laughs> contact Billy and he'll get a hold of me. My my email is xjhankey at gmail, and 
I typically answer everything that I get sent. I'm now on Facebook. I haven't been ever. I started last week, John Hankey. Um, it's my video break. If you type in breakthrough dash JFK, it'll come up on Vimeo. If you, you can, you might be able to find it on YouTube, but you know, I'm shadow banned um, as Don is and everybody else. Um, then you get to watch it for free. It's 99 cents on Vimeo. And if you buy the DVD, which I recommended Amazon for 14, three, 1399, they'll deliver it tomorrow. The, that's, a, that's a pretty good deal. Anyhow, um, did I leave something out? I don't think so. I don't think uh, so. Uh, Dark Legacy. Go, go see them oh. if you haven't. Go. I mean, they're just fantastic films that anybody who is a, an aficionado of alternative thought, you know, and, and the JFK assassination need to watch. Even if you're not, even if you're not uh, um, actively following JFK and the JFK of that, uh, assassination, you will find so many things. <laughs> It, especially uh, part two, that, that that's the first one I saw. So it's dear to my heart, right? You, you'll find so many things in there that lead to everything else. And you're like, oh my God, it's not, it's, it's, it's the, it's the real, you can trace this stuff. You get that there's real evidence behind it. You know, it's, it's not like jumping into QAnon and, and, and going off to wherever you go. No, this is before that. This is the real stuff. This is the stuff we were doing before we've been co-opted as, as a movement. And uh, so I, I want everybody to go over there, support John Hankey. All of his films are great. You know, even if you don't agree with them, they're entertaining. Dark Legacy 2 is about right. the murder of John Kennedy Jr. We right, haven't right, said right. that. Right. But, I mean, it cites the NTSB report. That's what, you know, it's, it's, do not rely on witnesses who think they heard this or think they heard that. There are quotes from the guy, his, the, his editor at... Um, George George Magazine, who he had lunch with the, the day of the crash. Well, I do cite this guy's record of their conversation, which contradicts uh, the official story completely. That Anyway, he, he told him that he was going to have a flight instructor on the plane, and, and there clearly was one, and the official story is that there wasn't. All right. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. We did 40 extra minutes today, guys. <laughs> uh, um, we're we're, we're going to be broadcasting live on freeworld.fm, hopefully next week. Let's see what happens. But there are already many people broadcasting over there. Angry Tiger, for one, who's going to be giving you a, 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 a sending you an email, Mr. Hankey. So look out for that. Uh, good, good friend and, and an excellent broadcaster. Um, he is doing live shows tonight. I think he should be doing a live show on freeworld.fm. Actually, now that I think about it, Chris Graves has recordings going up and he's going to be live soon. Don, uh, Tony, myself, uh, William Ramsey is, is live on freeworld.fm. Wayne McCroy, who was in the chat. What's up, Wayne? How you doing? Mr. Guard Goldsmith will be going live very soon. He was in the chat. How are you doing, sir? Let's say what's up to the people real quick. Mr. Chris Graves, Angus Mustang, what's going on? I'll hit you up later. Karen Carpenter, great to see you. Free mind, how are you? Yekka is in the chat. How you doing, Yekka? Good to see you. Uh, who else do we have here? We had Colin Wysong. What's up, Colin? How are you? Uh, the people in YouTube, I probably won't get you right now because that's Don's area, but uh, I'm thinking about you and I'm happy about you. Randall Henderson is in the chat. What's going on? Mr. Cooper's in the chat. How are you? Um, I'm, I'm, I know I'm missing people, but uh, whomever I'm missing, you know we love you. Okay, Steve Swan, what's up? We're getting up out of here. 
Thank you for everybody that's watching now, everybody that's going to be listening after the fact. Uh, take it easy now. We will see you next week, Lord willing. Tone, we out? Yeah, let me see if I can uh, see if I can play us out home, home brother. Let's see. Stand <laughs> by. Let me know if it doesn't happen. We can oh well, it's, it, may or, it may or may not. Stand by. Uh, well, I'll sing I, the Carpenters like... like uh, <laughs> well, when, when you shared the story earlier, it knocked it off. So uh, give me one second. I'll pull it up. Oh, my fault. Sorry. Yeah, it's, I, it's okay. It's okay. I noticed the graphic you put up was from They Live, which is Jesus, one of my favorite movies of all time. I love that movie. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's our logo. Is uh, yeah. Is, oh, and uh, it's for America Unplugged. It's such an important message. Yeah, it really is. So Wild Tone gets it. Theinfinitefringe.podbeam.com. Uh, the Infinite Fringe on Apple Podcast just did an episode with Mr. Hanky and Don popped in too. It's two hours worth of. All types of stuff. We started with Kennedy. We went everywhere. It, it was dope. Um, and uh, AmericaUnplugged.com. America Unplugged on Rockfin, 12 p.m. Eastern. You know the deal. America Unplugged on um, on uh, Apple Podcasts. Go check it there. Freeworld.fm. Uh, the AM Wake Up guys are doing a show on Friday from 1 to 4 p.m. I forgot what Steve Poikinen called it. Um, he sent me something. I don't remember the name, but it's him uh doing his thing so uh check that on fridays as well uh chris rob uh chris uh what who am i talking about chris graves charlie robinson charlie robinson is on um who else do we have you name it they're on freeworld.fm so make sure you stay tuned we're getting out of here no music today no, no i got music. it i got it i got the music are you ready right. there you go i'm yeah. ready let's let's get yeah, out of wolf, here wolfpack.gold arterburn.news i gotta get in my last oh. see you guys all right 